Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. Hello, my name is Dr. Nick Smolovsky, and I'm also a geoholic. We appreciate you tuning in for this out-of-this-world edition of Bad Elves, Seconds of Spatial News. We Bad Elves live our lives one spatial second at a time, and we know you, geoholics, do too. Short and sweet this week. Just two quick plugs for the week's news. One, a must-watch event of Virgin Galactic's Unity 22 spaceflight. And two, the Esri User Conference 2021, aka Geospatial Disneyland. As you probably know if you've been listening to the Geoholics for a while, I'm a huge fan of the modern space era. This week marks another amazing step towards our species getting off the third rock from the sun. Richard Branson and his company Virgin Galactic will launch into space on July 11th, the day this podcast airs, on their spaceship Unity 22. Alongside billionaire Richard Branson are a team of some pretty dang talented men and women, I must say. Following a hopeful, successfully flown test flight, Branson has promised a stunning announcement, something to apparently give more people the chance to become an astronaut. Here's hoping everything goes according to plan, and the world sees more spacefaring people. On a completely different geomatics plane, I wanted to quickly mention that July 12th through the 15th is this year's Esri's Users Conference, or like I like to say, at Geospatial Disneyland. If you have never attended this event, it is an absolute must for any geospatial nut. This year, the conference is again virtual and open to the public. All you need to do is sign up for a free Esri account to gain access to some pretty fantastic keynote presentations. And, a shameless plug, Bad Elf will be hosting a lightning talk presentation and a virtual booth, so please swing by and say hi. Alright, that does it for this week's Bad Elf's Seconds of Spatial News. We hope you enjoyed our designated news of the week. If you have any questions about this story or about Bad Elf GNSS products, please feel free to contact me via LinkedIn or through the Geoholics channels. May the force be with you, Geoholics. Cheers. Hello, Geoholics. Such a cool song. Thanks for being here, everybody. We are recording live and in person from the one and only Diamondback Land Surveyor Studio in the heart of Phoenix Suns country. Guess what? We made it to episode 89. I would usually turn this over to Schutz, but Schutz is, he's absent tonight. Upper body injury? I, this is a I think lower body lower injury. Lower body injury. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And if it's not, it will be. Uh, 89. So since he's not here, I am going to go with. Mike Ditka, of course. Mike Iron Mike. Iron Mike, American former football player, coach, and television commentator, a member of both the College and Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was a UPI NFL Rookie of the Year in 1961, a five-time Pro Bowl selection, and a six-time All-Pro tight end with the National Football League's Chicago Bears, of course, Philadelphia Eagles, and Dallas Cowboys. Uh, yeah, I love, and, and of course, the owner of Ditka's Restaurants. There you go. Kind of interesting thing, too, I saw. He has won a Super Bowl as a player, as a head coach, head coach. and as an assistant coach. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yep. three-peat. That's good. That's very good. Very also, good. Iron Mike. I never knew where that came from. I'm just looking at it right here. He was born in a steel town in Pennsylvania. Correct. Correct. Good I guy. knew that. 
Yep, for sure. Oh, and the best uh, corn chowder you're ever going to have at his restaurant. Really? Amazing. Absolutely. All right, lots to get to, but before we do, we must recognize Mr. Josh Stice from Uharley, Georgia. Hopefully I got that right. Josh is the latest Geoholics patron and will, of course, be receiving a highly sought-after Geoholics fan pack. Um I got to tell you, in, in all seriousness, we have some of the best listeners a podcast could hope for, and uh, I mean, really, just can't thank you enough for your continued support. It's, it's it's pretty amazing, it really is, and humbling, of course. Yeah, it's borderline a cult like following at this point. <laughs> it really is. That's a great comparison. All right, PJ, tell us about that opening number. All right, guys, that was Harry Nilsson jump into the fire. Harry was an American singer songwriter who achieved the peak of his commercial success in the early 1970s. His work is characterized by pioneering vocal overdub experiments, returns to the great American songbook, and fusions of Caribbean sounds. A tenure with a three and a half octave range, Nielsen was one of the few major pop rock recording artists to achieve significant commercial success without ever performing major public concerts or undertaking regular tours. The craft of his songs and the Defiant attitude, he projected, remains touchstones for later generations of indie rock musicians. He was voted number 62 in Rolling Stone's 2015 list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. Very underrated artist. Is no he? Doubt. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Also, that song is on the soundtrack of one of my top five favorite movies of all time. What's that? Goodfellas. Oh, it's Goodfellas? Goodfellas, yep. Yep. Got it. Plays a major role in there. Okay, f- this week's highlighted friend of the program. PJ's doing uh, double time tonight. There we go, back to back. That's Parkland College. Uh, looking for a convenient, affordable way to become a professional land surveyor? Stop what you're doing and check out the Parkland College Land Surveying Program. Uh, Parkland College offers a land surveying AAS program, prepares the student either for employment as a surveying technician or for transfer to a four-year degree program to become an Illinois professional land surveyor. Um, Parkland College also offers a land surveying certificate, which they call the Weekend Land Surveyor Program. Uh, It's WLSP is a hybrid course format where much of the work is done online or off campus. Um, Students earn 24 credits in just 24 months by watching pre-recorded lectures online, completing online lessons, and receiving on-campus instruction one weekend per month. Um, So Parkland College is the proud recipient of the 2016 National Council of Examiners uh, for Engineering and Surveying's Award. And anyone interested in either of these options, visit www.parkland.edu slash landsurveying or contact Corey Allred at K Allred. That's K-A-L-L-R-E-D at parkland.edu. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nicely done. All right. The Trimble Geospatial Weekly Words of Wisdom. This week's quote comes from T.D. Jakes. Oh, wow. Yeah, look at that tie-in. My publication. Apparently. All right, get this. So big ideas come from forward-thinking people who challenge the norm, think outside the box, and invent the world they see inside rather than submitting to the limitations of current dilemmas. That's a mouthful, but I like it. Outside the box thinking. Our guest today is an outside the box thinker, so that's the tie-in there. Uh, PJ, let's catch up a little bit. What's new? I, I know you had a big weekend. Yeah, big weekend. I uh, went out to California. A little bit. I mean, California has always got to be the move for the fourth, and a little bit different this time. In uh, we went to Los Angeles, and they weren't doing any fireworks at all. So signs everywhere, all the streets, all the you know when when you drive on the freeway, they have yeah. all those signs. No fireworks, no fireworks, and I was like, okay. Well, they, they can't not actually do fireworks. And sure enough, I saw like two or three fireworks. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I know we did that here in, in yeah. Tempe too. Everyone was going down there and mm-hmm. looking for fireworks and it wasn't happening. But solid fourth, we kind of hit almost every spot in LA. We were driving around and 
Beverly Hills and nice. we went down to Redondo Beach and Hermosa. Nice. So good time. I like getting out. Of, and that's first, that was the real first vacation since COVID's been over. And I know they're still struggling with it a little bit more over mm-hmm. there than we are here. Yep. Um, but it was nice to get out and be normal and go to places and go to bars, go to restaurants and the beach and stuff and, and, and have a sense of normalcy. Nice. How was the weather? It was awesome. It was amazing. It was even cold at night. I had to bring a pole over. Was it um, hard to uh, go there and not go sailing? Yes. Well, I actually, we drove to one of the marinas and I was trying to convince everyone to jump on one of these boats and they weren't, they weren't having it, but I'll be back next month. We're going sailing out there. So I had to just hold off for, but yeah, there was a, a super windy on, I think it was like Friday and I was just dragging them out there. Guys, we have to come on. We can't go all this way and not go on the ocean, but they won. I lost. Right on. Glad you had a good time. What about you? What we went to this past weekend? You know what? Oh, great 4th of July weekend. Went up, saw mom, uh, spent the rest of the weekend with the tiny piney. Weather was fantastic. Got some uh, monsoonal moisture, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I heard. Did something run through town this weekend? Uh, like what? An elk? Uh, an elk, a storm, something <laughs> like that. No storms? I thought I heard something about like lightning or uh, no, potential they, monsoon. There was some really good rain. Yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, flood warning type rains. It was yeah. great. It was awesome. It was good to see. Of course, temperature drops, you know, 20 degrees and just smells so fresh and clean. It was awesome. But one of my favorite smells. One of the things I caught myself um, riveted to this weekend uh, while it was raining, let's say, was watching YouTube videos of that structural engineers have posted putting out their opinions of how the condo building collapsed in Florida. That has been something I have asked us so many times. And I've also went down a YouTube rabbit hole too. Yeah. I can't believe, and I, it makes sense to me now. They don't want to rustle it around, but mm-hmm. how long it's, it's taken for them to go and, and see who's still in. I mean, if you're in there at this point, it, it can't be good. Yeah. Right. So like it, even in the first like three days, they were only able to get out of like the 157 or 160, whatever it was yeah. like 15 or something. Um, what a crazy thing to have to it's go crazy. in there. It's crazy. It's awful. Yeah, I could imagine being one of those first responders and having to deal with that. And just think about it. You know, thousands and thousands of pounds of concrete and, you know, rebar and, and everything else that you have to kind of like just sift through in order to find people. You know, I mean, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. I did see this stuff, and I think that's probably what you're talking about on YouTube, too, of like mm-hmm. there was a couple of folks that that did go out there that like months ago and they reported yeah. different issues with it. So like, this is potentially something that could have been avoided from what it sounds like. Right. I think potentially, I mean, even like 2018 when they did that structural report that they, they released even, I mean, the very transparent that town has for sure with all the stuff and um, just amazing. And then again, you know, structural engineers, everybody has an opinion and they, you know, post these YouTube videos. Hindsight's always 2020 of sort. Of yeah. Course. I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting. And for whatever reason, I am just absolutely drawn to it. So, very, very interesting. All right. Speaking of interesting, let's get to our guest this evening. Um, our guest is Dennis McKay. A little bit about Dennis. He spent his childhood in McMinnville, Oregon, earned a BS from the Oregon Institute of Technology. Do you know who that is, PJ? I don't. I'm going to guess the Pioneers. Go Owls. Oh, the Owls. He enjoys spending time outdoors with his wife, hiking, mountain biking, and kayaking. They travel four to five months out of the year to beautiful summertime places. I'm very, very jealous. Uh, He retired in 2012. I'm jealous about that, too. From the BLM after over 30 years of federal service, where he was the lead land surveyor in Arizona for about 26 years and New Mexico for another five years. Not a huge sports fan, but this is pretty funny. Uh, Maybe because he was scarred for life after being tricked into watching Muhammad Ali take the beating of his life in the rumble in the jungle, (laughs) only to come back and win the fight, of course. So, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us this evening. 
<laughs> yeah, good to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Congratulations on an amazing 30-plus year career at the BLM. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a good career. It's a, it's a good good um, good to be a national surveyor with BLM, uh, yeah. certainly. Yeah, I can't. The best surveyor, or not best surveyor, but the lead surveyor, I was actually the uh, automation coordinator okay. uh, quite a few years and had shepherded uh, a project that they were doing to create laps and longs of all the uh, courses that were set by uh, the general entity. So. Okay, so if I was to ask you what you're most proud of when it comes to your career, what would that be? Well, it's always good to find original monuments uh, when they are hard to find. Uh, that's always a real satisfying thing. It doesn't, doesn't have, we're not always in that position. Uh, sometimes those original monuments are easy to find, but when they really require some thought and some uh, just thinking outside the box, and you finally find it, it is it is very satisfying. It's a it's a good day. But mostly, I believe the best part of my career that lasted a long time was uh, when I was uh, the. Uh, uh, automation coordinator nationally for BLM uh, Cadastral Survey, and I was involved in a project to design uh, surveying software that would be able to be applied nationally. It was a big project that had to do with big land management systems, and the surveying end of it went pretty well, but there were just a lot of different problems with uh, how the approach to that overall land management thing happened and uh it ended up just being abandoned and the surveying part of it just disappeared but anyway that was still to be in that thing was was really important and i've also uh enjoyed being on uh, data design uh, committees you know uh like the federal geographic data committee i was participated in that the cadastral standards uh that fgdc uh had uh, were really overseen by the Bureau of Land Management. So I was able to go to a lot of those meetings and participate in the design of uh, of uh, what cadastral data really represents. I'll get, get into this later, but uh, how this all fits together. But yeah, those, those were high points for me. Wow, what a great opportunity. Hopefully you're able to uh, mentor some younger surveyors and pass all that knowledge down to them. Yeah. Uh, I, it seemed like the projects I was working on just uh, kind of dwindled after the some of it got done, and there really wasn't a lot of chance to mentor people. I obviously was able to train a lot of people, but I still haven't found anybody who really is in a place to take over the work that I uh, was involved in. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I was involved with a lot of other people, but a lot of those people just dropped out and um, you know retired or what have you and uh, I was just left to continue that research gotcha so one of the cool things that uh, I kind of latched on to in, in the bio information you said uh, I would love to pass yeah some of the one of the cool things that you mentioned in your bio is that of, and you already said it you know your love for finding hidden monuments through research and cleverness and I was drawn to the word cleverness. What did you mean by that? 
Well, sometimes the accessories aren't, sometimes the monument just doesn't seem to be there and the accessories may be gone. I think the best times I ever had was when I figured out the, uh, where the accessories are. Uh, and yeah, one, one, one point was just, I saw a dead, uh, burned log, uh, laying on the ground and decided it must be the bearing tree and <laughs> kind of went, dug around and found a little, a dip in the ground and dug down and sure enough, it was a rotten stump. It had been after a forest fire. And so from there, I was able to go bearing a distance down inside a juniper tree and in that shade and, you know, found just a, maybe three or four inches of a wooden post that had been burned off. But you could see the hewn marks, the axe marks that that post had in uh you know the 1800s and that that's always good and yeah there's there's another thing that was a little probably more clever but it's kind of maybe takes too long to describe but it was definitely a satisfying thing to find the original monument which also happened to be about the last four or five inches of a wooden post that you could just see the uh axe marks where they made a point out of that post but um yeah it's great to be able to sort out a boundary problem that's been uh, perplexing people for a long time. Uh, there's no doubt about it. That was some of the things that I think any surveyor can uh, appreciate. So, yeah, so, no question. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I was very fortunate to uh, early on in my career, probably the first 10 years of my survey career, work for the USDA Forest Service and do retracements, you know, massive retracement surveys. So, you know, I was, uh, again, you know, very fortunate to come across some of those original monuments and and do that research and, uh, and implement some of that cleverness. It is absolutely rewarding. And, uh, you know, I, I, my wish is that everybody would have an opportunity to do something like that. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you ever get over it. That's it's a it's a yeah, it's 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 a big part of the career that really draws me to it. The boundary part and the evidence. I'm just so into that that part of surveying. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow, even being in the private sector, I uh, many years before I didn't really get that involved in construction surveying. It seemed like we were always doing boundary surveys. But my favorite was to get on Forest Service contracts and go out and find those original career and i got a job with the blm and i'm just real happy about that because it is my favorite uh favorite kind of surveying is boundary surveying and the things that it takes to really find find monuments yeah we've had discussions on here a time or two that um as far as being a professional surveyor there could almost be two different maybe multiple different categories there could be the boundary surveyor and there could be the construction surveyor what, what would be your perspective on on that idea well i think looking i, I was really yeah I, I think you approach things differently uh definitely both the, the construction you're looking at streamlining uh and being efficient and being uh correct i guess is the best word but uh in boundary serving, you could spend like, you know, days looking for a monument that may or may not exist. You just don't know. So it, that, that's a, a, a real test of patience and stuff. But I, I really think that the boundary serving will never be uh, replaced with, uh, you know, serious automation. Whereas I sometimes look at 
construction surveying being that, you know, we've got like all these sensing devices that can really digest what a topography is. And once someone has, say, designed a road, you could almost like load that into a, you know, I'm, I'm almost thinking that you're going to have self-driving bulldozers. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like there's really be a need for surveyors because there's just so much that can be done through automation and that it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just seeing the role of construction surveying being um, just whittled away as time goes on. That, this is just my opinion because I'm just looking at what is being capable of these days. I mean, I, I'm just looking at farm equipment that can be, you know, har the harvest crops without even a rider and, or, or just robots that go out and weed. Uh, it, I, I think it's getting to a point where a lot of, you know, I, I was thinking construction staking can be done robotically, but I'm thinking at some point they're not even going to need to stake it. I think it's just going to be in all the computer of the bulldozer and it's just going to have, it's just going to figure it out. That's just, I'm maybe projecting way into the future, but I would, uh, I, I, I just have such a fondness for boundary survey uh, that, um, you know, that's what my focus has been. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You said something there that is really interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know that boundary surveying will ever be able to be automated. That's a really good thing, a really good point that you uh, that you touched on there. And I, I don't disagree with you on the construction staking side of things. Um, you know, as as we we move into the future, I can see that becoming more and more automated, just exactly like what you said. So listen, Dennis, I want to talk a little bit about this YouTube video series that you have. And I, I believe that, uh, I mean, yeah, well, I know you can find it by searching for Surveyor Think. So it's the Surveyor Think video series. And I believe there's, what, nine episodes that you have released. I've walked through them and watched them. And you've got some very interesting perspectives on, on a, a number of different topics. I want to touch on a little bit of, of a, or a few of them here. Where did the idea for the video series come from? Well, I, I, I've been researching this, you know, during the time I was with BLM, I was heavily involved in it. And then uh, when I retired, uh, I continued to do research personally. And I didn't have a way of passing that information on. So I wrote an article in surveying and land information science, uh, uh, I don't have my notes with me, but I think it's like May 2018, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, I footnoted that in certain places. And it's an article about what my ideas are for going forward with uh, finally making like a multi-purpose cadaster in this country. And <coughs> and what is, and I, I really put together a lot of ideas, which has to come from a lot of different avenues or it's just like a lot of, a lot of spinning plates, but uh, I was really had to be really terse with that article. And I really didn't feel like it was that digestible to someone who just walked into it. So I took those different aspects of my vision and made a video out of each one, you know, that would be under 10 minutes. So I tried to isolate it, an idea and uh, explain it. And then, hopefully that those ideas can be put together to make, make it easier to, you know, read that article again. So that, that's what really spurred me to do that. 
Yeah, no, the videos are awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm very hopeful that after our listeners, you know, hear this, that they go to YouTube and, and check the videos out as well, the Survey or Think video series. Um, but I, I just kind of kind of want to run through them here a little bit. You know, the, the first one, I mean, after the intro, I believe, um, I just kind of summarized them. It was uh, examining digital survey data from two sources, that being physical and imagined or abstract. What exactly did you mean by that? Well, I've been looking at how in mapping, you're actually creating a virtual world. So, uh, I mean, if you really think of something like Google Earth or something, it's, it's really a representation of the Earth. And it is, you know, you can go there, you can, well, you can go through all kinds of ideas about how you can do flights through buildings and stuff like that. So there's, it's actually like you're constructing a, a replica of the Earth in a digital form. So that people can visit it, I guess, from wherever they are. But cadastral data, land data, transactional data, uh, the things that surveyors would be involved in is really actually not physical. Uh, and what I mean by that is there are physical but non-physical aspects. And that's where I, I, in that video, I went into the idea of a survey point being the center of a monument. And the monument is physical, there's no doubt about it, but the center of it is like a point of no dimension. So it's more conceptual, you know, such as the line that goes between two points is, doesn't have any width. So it's not something you're going to see. Now you could argue that, well, you know, maybe a uh, center line of a road is uh, a monument. And, but then you're going to argue about where the center of the road is exactly. So when you're talking about exactly, then you really enter the realm of abstraction and I think it's really good just to keep in mind what those differences are. And I think, you know, we're taught these in school or, you know, as we go into the profession that, that, that there's, well, you know, I just take measurements, for instance, the a measurement is uh, never, never true. You know, it's never right. You never get the right answer. It's always not quite exact. And so it's important to know that measurements aren't exact. So what, how much they're not exact is really important to surveyors that uncertainty, and I get, get into uncertainty a lot, but the uncertainty is really important. And so a measurement that's made is really more of a, an informed opinion. And we were working with data where, uh, which is just sort of typical vintage data where we had all these bearings and distances. So where's the monument? Well, it's a dis bearing a distance from that monument, not bearing a distance from that. That's basically all people had for a long time is just the relate the physical relationships between these uh, points, the spatial relationships. So when we're building uh, coordinates for all these points, yeah, you have some ground truthing points, uh, but when you put that together, you, you we were using an analysis like least square analysis, which really comes up with the best uh, idea of where a monument is, and it can also tell you how uncertain that coordinate is. So to us, as we did that, we realized, well, the measurements are really the data. It's the evidence. And the coordinates that got adjusted from all this uncertainty, uh, is really more measurements on it. That coordinate can change. But the actual measurements that were made are the real data. And I just look at that as being like historical. Uh, it's, it's the evidence you want to have. So what we did was we 
cherish those measurements. We put the measurements of all these GLO surveys into a digital format, numerical digital database. Uh, well, they're really flat files at the time, but, but it is really organized data. Uh, the BLM would actually only store the latest record. Uh, so we didn't, if it, something's been resurveyed, we didn't collect the original survey, but that was just a, a rule that we made up and it made things go faster. It, it doesn't really apply in the private sector where you may have, you know, a line that's being measured 12 times and it's just, you know, everybody's opinion of what that measurement is. And it's all important. I'm not saying it's an opinion is bad. It's just that, you can't really decide one person's opinion is better than the other. That's where I'm trying to get at. So you can't just actually save all those monuments um, and create this uh, network of survey lines, but then you can also change those, or I guess enhance those lines to become parcel lines because there's not quite a one-to-one -one relationship between parcel lines and uh, survey lines because, you know, survey lines have ties. They might have a, like a six a line, say sixty foot width of a right of way, which isn't really a parcel line, and those kinds of things. And there's things that like curves and things where you just have a mathematical definition. So it's important when we were modeling data, and also when you're trying to understand really what you're doing. That's what you kind of fall into when you get into automation. You just have to figure what are we really doing here, and that that was one of the things that stuck out with me is that there is a difference between what's really abstract and what's really physical. And for me, I think the physical monuments are really just almost an intersection between those two worlds. And so it's, it's important. I mean, it, obviously, monuments are important. But it's just, to, it's just to keep things in mind and of what's real and what's abstract and, 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 and just realize that you know, measurements aren't exact. And that that kind of way of thinking helps you keep from being trapped, uh, you know, going down a, you know, a logic trap or getting, fooling yourself, I guess. It's important not to fool yourself. And yeah, that, that, that's what that... Uh, so you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to circle back on. Was about uh, looking at those two worlds. Yeah couple things I want to circle back on. Um, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the, I guess the accuracy of, of the measurements. And I, th I think it boils down to, you know, what the, the product you're trying to create is and the accuracy that's required for it. Um, you know, what you're talking about is almost, almost like the difference between GIS accurate versus survey grade accurate. Am I, am I onto something there? Well, yes, but I wouldn't, I have a hard time differentiating between that because, yeah, there's there's a lot of, like, where I was working at the BLM, there wasn't really a huge demand for super accurate stuff. I was really even shocked at when I first went to work at how, you know, I was actually a rear chainman, if you ever mm -hmm. imagine that. Yeah, I can. Uh, the head chain would just drop a pin from the front of the chain onto the ground and watch where it dropped and jab the chain in there where i was trying to be very precise back there with my plumb bob and everything and uh, it, it 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 really makes sense to just you know make, get you know make a lot of miles when the accuracy isn't that important 
uh, or should I should say precision, isn't that important? The value of land. So a lot of it ties to the value of land. When you get into urban surveys, surveys, yeah, you tie that stuff down. But the important thing that uh, we kept looking at when we were analyzing these surveys is how how reliable these surveys were, or how unreliable they were. So when we have an old survey, we can weight it in these adjustments. Mm. And so when you actually do an adjustment, you may have we used to adjust maybe eighty or a hundred townships at the same time. Uh, as a continual network, but we would have surveys from the 1800s and all the way up to modern GPS stuff. So at the end, after the analysis is done, they give you the best and the most probable play coordinate that that point is. Mm-hmm. It's just the probability. Uh, and then, of course, you get this air ellipse that says, well, there's a 95% chance that if you did know the true coordinate, it would be in that ellipse. And And so... To, to us, we were thinking, wow, it's really important. If you have a coordinate, you also have the uncertainty. So yeah, yeah, you can have a GIS where the actual uncertainty has to be almost nothing. You need real certainty in some of that stuff. Like if you're doing GIS in urban area, but also if you're out in, you know, near a wilderness area or out where there's really no boundaries between agencies it's really not as important uh to have that it's like it doesn't really matter whether it's here two feet over you know in terms of guessing where these coordinates are you know of course once you get to a monument you know that that's the monument but trying to describe it back in the office is another thing yeah so so that's why i don't differentiate gis and surveying because when i look when i got involved in it it the, the way we could actually look at this data was uh, we would put it into databases and then the way to visualize these databases is a map and that's what you use GIS for. So for us, uh, the GIS was like a tool for us to visualize data and like it didn't always involve GIS personnel. It, it just involved, um, it's just a tool like you did, you know, use word processing for one thing and spreadsheet for another and GIS for another. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's just every survey has its own uh, demands of how, how long people want you to spend to get just quite right. But uh, in terms of uh, repeatability and uh, I guess truthfulness in coordinates, but um, it, you know, I got to the point where I'm combining all those different surveys together, trying to make sense out of it. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So I differentiate too much between GIS and survey because I really think these geo databases are really where uh, surveying data needs to be. Like if you have a history of uh, measurements that you can collect off of survey plats, then, and and also GPS points, uh, that stuff is best done in databases that are (coughs) extended to be able to understand spatial geometry, geo-reference stuff, so that you actually do, part of the data is knowing uh, what the geography of that point is, the geo-referencing part. You know, it's like a point, you'd know, it would know the coordinate, it would probably know what the datum and projection is of that coordinate too. But that stuff is all stored in these geo-databases. They, they keep track of that. And so once you have things in a geo-database, then you could just see it as a map and you can interact with the different elements 
of, I guess you could call it the records of the database by just pointing to lines of points and stuff. So that's how you interact with it once, once it's in there. So right. these, uh, the geo databases of surveys that you're, that you're speaking of, do you see that information being available to like, would it be, would it be, um, you know, combined by town, by county, by state? How, how, how do you see that best working? Yeah. You know, in the BLM, we, we would sort it out by these state offices. There's, you know, 11 or 12 of them and they would have, they would put those databases. So maybe they were just, we ended up, when we got it in GIS, it was done by state. So you'd have the public land survey system and all the federal boundaries that are recognized uh, in a state published as one piece of data. Uh, and I, I, I guess in the end, what how it's visualized is each county uh, or each state government or each federal agency would publish uh, the parcels of land that they have jurisdiction over. That, that concept showed up and got published around 2007 that is if you have a multi-purpose cadastro the idea was you're going to just have one great big coast-to-coast parcel system but they hadn't really thought through how that was going to happen um but once they thought it through they thought well actually every everyone who has jurisdiction over these parcels should just publish their own parcels but even in 2007 they couldn't really understand what it would take to do that the kind of a collaboration that it was going to take between these counties to maintain uh edge matching you know having a seamless coverage hadn't really i it's it just hadn't been thought out and i think they just kept on relying on the blm to come up with an idea and of course we do have that idea and it's really not that hard technically it's just uh hard institutionally and uh, yes. analogy i but it's you know really simple. It's we have the technology to, to go to a metric system right now in the U.S. You know for everything. But is it going to happen? You know it's the, it's it's an institutional problem and cultural problem. So uh, I'm pushing to get whatever it takes to get a multi-purpose cadaster up. And you know of course I can go into why that why that is helpful. But um, but that doesn't get down to the um, well. I guess it does. It gets to the idea of. Uh, um, my video on the multi-purpose cadaster and uh yeah that that's a great video and it's, it's so intriguing to me so in your opinion i mean you really don't see any reason why a, a, like a national multi-purpose cadaster um couldn't become a reality right not at this uh, not this day and age i i think that a lot of things have come uh to fruition in other technologies, you know, like I could just say database security uh, and, of course, enable things like uh, uh, machine learning and auto artificial intelligence and certain other things that would really and, and just being able to have the Internet and actually having a, an infrastructure of data that you can rely on. Uh, all those things are uh here and it's, it's like surveyors are handed all these technologies that could make this a reality and it's just a matter of doing it right now i just if it, it can be done and i would love to you know 
write software, I mean, not code it, but design software to, uh, to at least demonstrate how all this uh, can happen. But yeah, it's, it's, it's so doable right now. Um, and I, you know, it's like, I, I'm sure it would just take a long time for me to go through all these different elements of what could take place, but, uh, to make that a reality. But, um, yeah, I think it should happen. I mean, we have a thing now that's a cadastral theme of the national spatial data infrastructure, which consists of, uh, polygons and the points along their vertical. They're like parcel points, parcel corners. And there's information about those things, including uh, the the unreliability of each coordinate, which is a good thing. But that is what really serves the downstream users. But the maintenance of that thing is the tricky part because it really goes, it really requires data analysis. You know, you get, we've got surveys go out in the field all the time every day it's all around the country just gathering new information but where does it go i mean it just it goes onto a plat and you get signed and moved on but you know I, i'm envisioning a, a system where the focus is really on getting that data into a database and uh, you can just derive a plat from a database it's like the same information just expressed differently you get it plot it on a piece of paper and get it to the county or wherever and have it signed. Yeah. Yeah. That, but, but it would be a reflection of the same data, but this data that you get in a database is so much more useful than what is on paper. It's, it's just stuff you can really analyze geometrically and statistically, and you can do all kinds of comparisons and find problems and actually evaluate uh, evidence and maybe have clues on what really happened in real sticky situations where you just can't figure out what these surveyors have done in the past. But you can really organize that data and unify it so that you can really compare it and see what's going on. That's the good thing about these data publicly uh, available for free. And that's what, that's what basically, that's what the spatial, uh, Spatial data infrastructure, the national spatial data infrastructure, is, is just a permanent place where you can always get that data. And you can always get parcel and point data out of that. Uh, but I wanted to add to the um, standards so that you can standardize what measurement data is so that surveying data has a, has a format that it can get to and a place you can put it on the, on the internet so that it's readily available so that nobody really has to type in any any measurement value that's you know at once it's once it's in digital format you don't have nobody should ever have to type it in again uh it's just a lot of make work that shouldn't happen and i i think that the history of survey measurements as much as we can get that into these databases then uh make it available i i I think it'd be just a national treasure. It, it's a huge thing to have that. Uh, and, and it's really important for maintaining this parcel um, coverage that down, you know, downstream users use. I mean, the BLM has the CAD NSDI, which is parcels of points, but they, they provided that to the public. But, you know, even counties have a hard time using it because there's really no private ownership lots in it. It's not the, the BLM's place 
or the federal government's place to get into that business. But the original intent was to, to collect the PLSS and all these federal boundaries to support the uh, BLM and Forest Service needs and all that, but uh, to design a system that everybody could jump in on and add all of the complexities of private lot ownerships, and then you would have a single parcel coast-to-coast coverage, seamless coverage. But that has not happened. And I, my deepest feeling was that the reason it has never happened and it cannot happen is because it's impossible to maintain with all the surveying data that's uh, being developed. It's just too much uh, to go through and try to extract that data from wherever you can grab a hold of it and convert it to here and type it in there. And it's just a mess. But if you had it as a whole unified system, then it wouldn't actually cost a lot of work. It would just be as you're doing measurements, you're changing, you're actually adding to the database mm. uh, online, you know, to be reviewed and everything. Yeah. No, I think in theory, it's an amazing idea. But once everything is secure, offline database can be just um, uploaded to the great big database in the sky, the enterprise database, the spatial infrastructure database. I guess I might be getting ahead of myself, but that's that's where I'm seeing that uh, going. Yeah, no, I think, like I said, in theory, I think it's an amazing idea. And if you can somehow pull this off, oh my gosh, that would be legendary. Um, Yeah. For sure. And and I think that it's going to have to, something's going to have to happen because uh, I I focused a little bit on augmented reality. And I did write an article in um, the California Surveyor Magazine that came out last fall. Uh, in December or so. And then uh, that got reprinted in the New York uh, State's equivalent, the Empire State Surveyor. And and that talks about augmented realities being something where you put on augmented realities and you, you can just walk out on the street and see all the boundaries being projected onto the ground. And, you know, they're not going to be in the right place. And what does that mean? And how confusing is that going to be? And I think that surveyors have an opportunity to um, really get involved in maintaining those boundaries, uh, you know, in their county. I mean, obviously, BLM would do their stuff with the federal boundaries. But since since that article came out, I started realizing that these boundaries couldn't be just lines on the ground, but could be projected onto the ground as walls. Mm. And you walked out your street and took a look around and your boundary line might be going through your neighbor's garage or you're through your garage house or what have you. It's just going to be a mess. People won't believe that stuff. But if you happen to know that these boundaries aren't known, the uncertainty is within about 10 feet, then you could realize, okay, somebody needs to do some more work to get these things tied down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, money, uh, obviously money that you know, fall into the hands of surveyors, but you could at least understand it. And that's where I think the symbology of those lines should not be a static wall, but should be just a wavy line or a curtain or mm-hmm. Northern lights or and be just like, okay, this line could be here. It could be there. And so when people are looking at it, that line could be 
moving around, maybe not, you know, jerking them around too fast, but, but just to real, they realize, okay, there's a lot of uncertainty in this line. Uh, and yeah, you know, what is it going to take to stabilize it? And, you know, I could answer that problem if it came to my desk, because I know that maybe it, uh, I just look at what, what was collected and maybe you need to put more historical survey plans down you know maybe the lines that your tax assessor or something i you know who knows what how these parcel systems got put into place for all these counties uh but having surveyors in charge of dealing with that geometry would be uh a service to the public i'll tell you uh, and i think in some states it's actually required but you just don't really have the tools to do it and that's what i want to do is tools to get that data in and um and to make life easier for surveyors on the ground, because if they have a, a laptop or a tablet or a phone, uh, it, it'd be almost like a navigation thing. But the actual data that the county or the government is publishing would be um, right on, basically right on your phone. Or if you put on your augmented reality glasses, you could see, you know, it projected onto the ground. So it would make a lot of sense that when you're doing uh, survey work for the system to already know uh, that if you can't find a corner that had been a, on a grant line and it's missing and there's no accessories, no, you know, you know that it's just been destroyed, that you've got to re recompute that. Well, you need to do that with a, if you're following the manual or whatever, uh, you have to do a grant boundary adjustment. But actually, this computer already knows that because it knows that it's on a grant and it's re storing a corner recomputing a corner on a grant line it's it's kind of it's like it, there's a lot of the decisions and that, that that normally we you really have to think uh you know have a lot of broad knowledge about how to do that and maybe you might mistake things there's ways of doing you know just maybe blundering or maybe having the wrong person on the job i don't you know i can't really say how it is but it it's, it's important that the, this, a lot of the decisions that surveyors normally make don't really have to be made. And 1.2 is section subdivision of the you know, public land survey system. The, the geometry for the, the instructions to do subdivision has already been, uh, it's already been stored in computer. I mean, it's, it's already there. So that thing about on a, on a test, like, oh, figure the centerline parentheticals for section six, you know, go get that. Well, you don't need to know that anymore. That, that, that stuff's already burned yeah. in data. I mean, like you're in section six, it knows it's section six. It knows what parentheticals are. You just say, hey, you know, give me the, uh, you know, the 16th corners along these things, the proportional lines, and it's there. It, you, you, it's already there. So you know, those are the kind of things that make life a lot easier for a surveyor is to um, have that already, you know, those problems are already solved. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I love where you're going with that. And, you know, the, uh, I think that the VR and, you know, AR technologies are going to have a huge impact on the survey profession moving forward, you know, with com combining that, you know, and the subsurface utility engineering folks. I mean, my goodness, I think there's just so many possibilities there. And speaking of the future of surveying, I mean, you've been doing this for a, a really, really long time. Where, where do you see the profession going um, as we move forward over the next five or 10 years? Well, of course, 
if we can get these things in place and get this data measurement data public, um, I think it's going to drive a lot of, well, it's going to, of course, it's going to, I think what it'll do is it'll, it'll get surveyors to focus on building this national database of survey measurements because they will be using that data to do their own surveys. But I think that um, a lot of what's going to drive that is the public uh, because mm. when they can see boundary lines with augmented reality, and I can tell you, someone could do a programmer could sit down look at the data that's out there. They could take their county's parcel data set and actually figure out how to project that stuff onto the ground using augmented reality. And I suppose there's still uh, out there programmers that are working on augmented reality uh, glasses or however uh, in anticipation for this. Uh, but, but if somebody stumbles on this idea, then they're going to be putting out these boundaries that you're going to put on your glasses and, you know, see all kinds of uh, mm -hmm. problems. It's going to cause problems. Uh, if people, if it's not displayed properly or explained properly. And I think it's going to really drive people to surveyors to say, you know, how can we stop these boundary lines from moving around in our augmented glasses? Mm -hmm. and I think there's other things uh, uh, you can, you could say, once you get a job done, you could actually walk a person around the uh, their property and show them the exact, okay, we got these boundaries tied down and you see these boundary lines as solid lines. But you could also do that same thing with virtual reality if the client isn't actually on the property. You mm -hmm. could do a scan of the property or you know a 3D sort of picture and then you could just send that to the client saying, here's that property and I projected your parcel lines on it so that you could see how that all works or what you really own and what you don't. Uh, and that's really going to be an important part of um, communicating between uh, clients and surveyors. And of course I uh, was uh, more about how you can really streamline the entry of uh, survey records uh, and to get in, to that numerical digital format into those databases. But I think that that, that those abilities that are going to be coming around in the corner, like really soon when I'm reading about what's going on and plan for these uh, devices, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality, it's going to be a game changer. And I, I know even uh, news organizations are starting to think about uh, not just video, but 3D video of all these different events because they're going to be able to uh, project 3D news into people's living room. And, you know, my, my thinking is had a 3D camera on, you know, like the president, you know, the State of the Union or whatever, uh, you put on some augmented reality glasses and you could just have that podium just right in the middle of your living room and walk right up to it watching the president speak. And that's going to undo, that's going to really change news. If you haven't, if you're going to be able to provide that to people, if people have augmented reality glasses and they go to this news channel and they can get that happen, but they can't get it in the other news channel, you know, guess who's going to get the business? Mm. You know, it's, it's going to be that kind of thing. And those things like news and gaming is really going to catapult the technology of these devices uh, exponentially just real soon. It's just happening. And surveyors can just walk right into that because uh 
you can use these augmented reality and virtual reality to demonstrate how uncertain boundaries are, at least in the database mm. of um, these counties. And what it, it's just going to be part of, it's just going to be part of what people are going to expect uh, out of uh, surveyors and, and everybody. And I, I mean, I just think about uh, when I was a kid and uh, these Cadillacs came out with these buttons in the door that would roll up your window electrically. <laughs> who, who are these people that can't even crank up their windows? You know, <laughs> and like now try to buy a car that has a crank, you know, to crank up your window. You know, we, we expect so much more that <laughs> people, and, and it makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't want to do that anymore to tell you the truth, but you know, it's, I think we're at that point where we think, you know, why do we need, you know, these geodatabases in the sky, you know, that we can just grab a hold of and make use of? Well, you know, at some point, you're not even going to question it. Uh, you're going to, like, talk to your grandkids about, oh, back in the day, you know, <laughs> they have to, you know, like. <laughs> had, had to leave your office to do a boundary survey. It was horrible. Survey like this. And, you know, people aren't. Yeah, just grandpa, it's time for your nap, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm getting up off track, I think, but uh, I, that's where I think it, uh, things are going is that uh, there's just going to be a lot of expectations for what surveyors can provide. And boy, surveyors that are going to get into that and, and move with that, or like if a county gets into that, and if we could just standardize this data and there's really not much to it. I mean, I actually propose a standard. I, I have a website up on the university of New Mexico um, site. These people are gracious enough to um, host it for me. Uh, but I took a the GCDB, the BLM's GCDB, which uh, was basically a lot of uh, text files, you know, one text file per count or not one text file per township but they were organized by township but i combined them into um the uh, into geodatabases from text files into geodatabases and i um formed a, what i consider to be a this a national what could be a national standard and i published that uh, and you can go into that data and you can zoom in and zoom out and see some things it's more of a map kind of presentation you can't actually get to the data uh, there are technologies that can allow you to do that and i would love to just open that data up so that you could actually go in and say wow you know here was the bearing and distance in their original native units and who did it and when and you know it's just like there's just so much data that is attached to these measurements that are useful uh but uh right now you can't get it uh in, in that format. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's going to come, come to a point where we're going to really expand what we consider to be cadastral data to include the measurements, because that's going to tie everything together and make it possible to continually maintain and um, improve all of these parcel geometries. And, it, and also, I just swear it will, uh, streamline data entry because you're not doing a lot to satisfy 
the requirements of the software so much. So a lot of that stuff is just going to be really automatic and you could just focus on what the actual purpose of your job is. So there's, um, there's a lot to be done. It's a, there'd be a good future. And if, if some county decided, yeah, we want to just adopt this standard and uh, convert our existing parcel databases to that, um, you can't. And it's like you can make like permanent shapes and, you know, they can change their, I say their parcel, they're permanent, but they're permanent. They exist permanently, but they can, uh, you can always refine the coordinates on them and maybe the attributes, but the actual uh, entities become permanent. And it's really a place to put data. Like if you have a, a point uh, that you just measured, like a monument you measured, that's just one more measurement on this monument. And you can actually attach that. You can have an entry for that measurement, but you can also say it's at that, it's on that point. So you may have like 10 different people doing GPS on that point. And, and they're all in the database and they all know that it's that same point. And then you can have things like, you know, the idea, and this comes to the abstraction thing of a corner point. And I could say maybe a section corner or a quarter corner, center quarter is a concept of a partial point. But you can actually have different monuments that is everybody's opinion of where that parcel point is. So the data that I have presented, you know, models that kind of thing so that you can actually go to the database and find out where all the uh, multiple monuments are, the, you know, porcupine corners, what have you. But it's a good heads up if you're doing research on an area to know that, you know, that there's all these different measurements, the different monuments, and it's just all a... Let's see. What what is the word for that? I think it's. I'll just try mayhem. <laughs> the pincushion. That at least you're not sweeping problems under the rug. It's all out there, and I think if you're a really a good surveyor, you're going to really embrace that. And if you're someone who's really getting away with a lot of stuff, and who knows, maybe not making the best decisions, you know, it's, it's going to come back. It's going to be kind of like in everybody's face now. So, yeah, no, Dennis, I, I absolutely appreciate your passion as it pertains to this. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to have a lot of questions. Um, it, everything, it sounds like a great idea. I mean, it sounds like it'd be a, a huge undertaking, of course. Um, and if people wanted to find out more, what's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? Well, I, uh, I know that the two articles, the magazine, typical, you know, survey magazine, uh, popular magazines, the one in California there, I think I have my email address, and that's good. The uh, peer-reviewed article I uh, had published in uh, Land and Survey Information Science uh, has, um, uh, fortunately, you have to kind of pay for that uh, article, but, but it does have my phone number i believe and uh email address so i'm open open to you know getting emails uh um, oh gosh e-e-d-a-c dot um unm dot edu slash projects slash survey page gets you to the uh interactive maps web maps uh that you can actually explore the three different three or four different uh, databases that I've been presenting um, 
And I actually did write the code for that, amazingly, in a short amount of time. Which involved learning how to do it. But um, <laughs> it has a lot, like, because I couldn't actually publish it as feature data, but had to publish it as map data, um, I put a lot of information in there and little links to different uh, graphics and stuff that actually line out what that design of my data is. And if, if somebody has a site I can upload, I can upload data like uh, the New Mexico uh, GCDB, um, Wyoming, Oklahoma, uh, South Dakota, I think. And I, I've got those things in a standardized format. And if you, if you get it as, I, I have it in different formats, but if you have the software, the uh, ESRI has the ArcMap or GIS, they have a uh, way of getting into the metadata, which is the, actually the description of the design of the data. It's actually how I documented my design was through metadata. And I do have uh, versions of that data that is in the FGDC compliant uh, metadata format. And there's another uh, international one that uh, is based on a graphic mark, uh, markup language, uh, the ISO, I can't remember the number, but it's a ISO standard that uh, metadata that uh, has a GML format. I have it there, but neither of those two uh, FGDC or this uh, federal or global one doesn't really uh, cover all of the all as much as the ESRI does. So it's yeah, I I, I I'm really trying to get the yeah, I, I can I could probably publish the metadata, but I think that what I really need to do is get into a standards committee, and if the survey community would see fit to get a committee together and um, actually take that standard and, you know, make it national. It's not my place to do it. I can tell you, I can't just committee came, you know, together and looked at it. They're going to come up with a standard that's pretty close to mine. I mean, I could, you know, there's different decision points in there where I wish I knew a little bit more about uh, things that um, would solidify it. But, a lot of that has to do with just efficiency and performance and stuff. And if I knew the answer to that, I would know exactly the design. But it, uh, I think it's a pretty solid design, and I'm hoping to, you know, make it a standard. And then we can move forward because then we collect data into that standard. You can migrate data into that standard, and it would be a lot useful, a lot more useful to people because once you have data in a standard, then you can write software to that. So it's just the idea of, you know, like if you're a programmer and you're writing, writing an application for a county, you know, the, you, you know, you're selling maybe four or five copies of that software to that. It, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to just have a standard where you can really have uh, a lot of people write reading and writing to it. And I think even the current commercial uh, software packages could just evolve their software to read and write to that standard. I mean, they're writing to something, but, you know, why not to that standard? So, you know, I think it can really revolutionize 
the way surveyors approach data and how they think about it. And I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I, I appreciate that answer. Um, so we've touched on a lot of different things and I know we kind of talked about this before the show, but I'm hoping that, you know, maybe you'll come back in the future and talk about uh, a few of these topics a little bit more in detail. Is that something you'd be willing to do? Yes, it is. That'd be, it is. I, now, um, I expect to be a back into where I can have, uh, you know, my laptop and all kinds of like an inside, uh, environment to have a talk with you probably in uh, late October, November. It's, you know, nothing's really set in stone, but, um, sure. where I spent pretty hot, pretty <laughs> hot right now. Yeah, no, that'd be great. And, uh, we'll definitely, when we post this episode, we'll put links to the various things we touched on, you know, as far as the YouTube videos and the database that you mentioned. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I watched that video, but also those, uh, when you get to kind of the basics of that, it, it'll make those articles make a lot more sense. And so, yeah, we'll yeah. put, we'll put links to the articles as well so that people have uh, plenty of opportunity to, you know, kind of drill down into some of the things we've talked about tonight. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, we're running short on time here. Um, Dennis, thank you again so much for being with us. We really appreciate it and hope you'll come back. Yeah, you bet. I'd love to. It was, it's been fun. All right. Again, thank you for your time and, and, and your wisdom and your, uh, your foresight. It's amazing. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that will do it. Hands down. Another friend making value adding show. Please be sure to check us out at the geoholics.com. Like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Don't forget you can download all of our podcasts from the new podcast app available at landsurveyorsunited.com. Send us an email at info at the If you have some words of wisdom of your own and like to share with us, last but not least, please support our amazing friends in the program, such as Parkland College, every chance you get. Be sure to mention that you're a geoholic for the VIP treatment. Pay it forward. Add value. Make friends. Harry Nelson, jump into the fire available everywhere. Till next time, be safe and healthy, everybody. Go Suns! Once again, a shout out to our friends of the program, Aerotech Mapping, Inc., ATMLV.com, Advanced Geodetic Surveys, Inc., AGSGPS.com, Bad Elf GPS, Bad-Elf.com, Cobb Fenley, CobbFenley.com, Cyanic Automation, GetJobBook.com, Diamondback Land Surveying, DiamondbackLandSurveying.com, Get Kids Into Survey, GetKidsIntoSurvey.com, Land Surveyors United, LandSurveyorsUnited.com. Mentoring Mondays, mentoringmondays.xyz, Monson Engineering, monsonengineering.com, Nettleman Land Consulting, nlcprep.com, Parkland Community College, parkland.edu slash surveying, Safety Apparel, safetyapparel.us, Tiger Supplies, tigersupplies.com, Trimble Geospatial, geospatial.trimble.com.